So when I was a kid, maybe you did this as well, my sister and I would get into our parents' closet, and we would have a lot of fun dressing up in their clothes, flopping around in suits and dresses that were way too big for us. We would play at being mom and dad. Our parents thought it was funny, uh, even, even cute, you know, that we wanted to imitate them. Now, had I put on my dad's clothes and then gone looking for the car keys and heading out the door, the fun would have stopped in a hurry. Wearing dad's clothes didn't authorize me to drive dad's car. Here's the thing. Children imitate their parents. Uh, They all do, at least for a while. It's kind of hardwired into us, like father, like son. It's proverbial in almost every culture. But imitation has its limits. Taken too far, imitation becomes usurpation. I did this all the time as a kid. I was the oldest, and I was constantly trying to parent my younger siblings. Some of you know about this. Some of you know it because you were an older sibling doing it, and some of you remember it bitterly because you were the younger sibling, and it was being done to you. And the reality is it never worked because I didn't have that authority. I had to learn that loving my parents meant imitating their character, not their authority. Now, now the Bible describes the relationship between God and his people as a parent-child relationship. It's not meant to be infantilizing or demeaning to us. It's meant to be intimate and loving. And and like any parent-child relationship, Scripture is constantly encouraging us to imitate God. I mean, the word Christian is actually a, a diminutive of Christ. This is why it first got invented, and it was given to followers of Jesus by people who hated Jesus and followers of Jesus. It meant little Christs, meant to be dismissive, but actually, Christians adopted it because it turned out to be, yeah, yeah, that's that's what we should be like. We should be like our older brother. We should be little Christs. We're told in 1 Corinthians 11 to imitate Christ. We're called in Matthew 5, verse 48, to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's like it's supposed to be hardwired into us. And in fact, I think it is. All of us, every single person in this room, in one way or another, is trying to imitate God. The question is, what is it about God that you most want to imitate? Is it his character that you want? Or is it really just his authority? To answer that question, we're going to turn again to the book of James, who, as I said, is trying to hold up a mirror to us and ask us, What do you see? What do you see in this mirror? 
So turn to me to James with me to James chapter one. James chapter one. We're going to start with verse nineteen. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, this is found on page one thousand and seventy-one, one zero seven one. James chapter one. We've made it as far as verse 19. That's where we're going to pick it up this morning. We're going to finish out the chapter. So we're going to look at verses 19 to 27. If you're not normally in church or not used to using a Bible, the the big numbers on the page are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are verse numbers. We're going to be referring to this a lot. So you'll just be helped by keeping it open throughout the sermon because I'm going to kind of point us back to it several times. Let me explain to you where we are. We're not too far into the book yet. James, we we learned uh, the, the last couple of weeks is writing to Christians who are undergoing trials. And those trials maybe are causing them to want to give up or, or compromise, but James wants them to persevere in faith until they reach maturity. He doesn't want them blaming God for these trials. Instead, he wants them to be asking God for the wisdom that they need to persevere. Now we get to verse 19, and James introduces the characteristics of maturity that he's really going to develop and unpack in the rest of the book. But he's not giving us a to-do list in these verses. No, he's, he's actually trying to convince us of something. And here, I think, is his argument. We'll put it on the screen. Don't play God. Obey God by imitating God. Don't play God with your life. Instead, obey God by imitating God. As we examine this morning the line between the imitation of God's character and the usurpation of God's authority, I want you to consider what you see of your own life in the mirror of God's word. All right, first, don't play God. Look there at verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Okay, we're going to stop right there. We only get two verses in. The first characteristic of maturity that that James wants to talk to us about has to do with our speech. We're told three things here. We're told to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. I mean, that is really good practical advice that probably everybody just recognizes. But it's not particularly Christian advice, is it? I, I mean, who wouldn't benefit from taking that kind of advice? What, what makes this particularly Christian, what makes it a mark of genuine and mature faith comes in verse 20. And it's because our anger doesn't accomplish God's righteousness. Well, what is God's righteousness? And why didn't our anger help with it? Well, if you're familiar with the New Testament, if you're at all familiar with the writings of Paul, you'll know that righteousness is often translated justification. So God's righteousness here could refer to God's verdict of not guilty, in which case he'd be saying our anger doesn't accomplish God's verdict of not guilty, his justification. I don't think that's what it's saying. Uh, Another sense of this word, it can have the sense of being vindicated. Righteousness can be a kind of vindication. 
And James is going to use the word that way a little bit later. We'll see that as we get deeper into the book. But, but I think actually right here, he, he's using it in, in the sense that it so often shows up throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, the language of righteousness simply has the sense of being just. To be a righteous person is to be a just person. It's a deeply relational word. The, the, the righteous person, the person who has righteousness, is the person who gives everyone else around them exactly what they're due. The, the one who is just owes no one a debt of justice. So uh, it's, it's interesting. You, you, you hear this in the language of Saul in uh, 1 Samuel 24, David has just spared Saul's life. And Saul says to David, David, you are more righteous than I, for you have done what is good to me, though I have done what is evil to you. The, the, the righteous person is the person who gives what another person is due. The, the unrighteous person is the person who gives what a, another person does not deserve, is not due. And ultimately, it is God who is righteous. God is righteous in all that he does and in all of his ways. He gives everyone exactly what they are due. A striking example of this in Nehemiah chapter 9 uh, they, the people have returned uh, to, to the land. Uh, they have begun to rebuild uh, the, the temple, the, the walls of the city, and they are uh, reflecting on all that's happened to them, having been sent into exile, uh, ha having had their city destroyed. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 33, the Levites declare about God, you are righteous concerning all that has happened to us because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Our king's leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to your commands and warnings that you gave them. When they were in their kingdom with your abundant goodness that you gave them and in the spacious and fertile land that you set before them, they would not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. You see, there the, the Levites are confessing that God was righteous in sending them into exile, righteous in bringing these terrible events upon them. This is God. God above all is righteous. And James is adamant. Our anger does not accomplish God's righteousness, his justice. Our anger does not give people what they are due. But that's exactly what we think we're doing when we get angry, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, if we were to map our emotions onto an x-axis, right? So I'll, I'll be zero. I'll be here at the center. And on one side is everything that's good and true and beautiful. And on the other side of the axis is everything that's wrong and bad and evil, and we were going to map our emotions onto this axis. Which emotions show up on one side of the axis? Which emotions show up on the other side of the axis? Where does anger live? 
over here. Anger always lives on the side of the axis where things that are bad and wrong and evil and untrue are happening. We never get angry when it's good. We never get angry when something's beautiful. We never get angry when when something is right. No, we get angry when it's wrong. Or at least we perceive it to be wrong. Anger really just speaks with one voice. It says, that's not right. That should be condemned. Anger is the emotional expression of the desire for justice to be done. Now, here's the thing. It's good that we're able to be angry. Our ability to be angry, to feel anger, is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Because God gets angry. God feels anger towards what is evil, towards what is wicked, towards what is wrong and unjust. He feels it completely and purely. And therefore, it is right to feel anger towards wickedness. It is right that we feel anger towards injustice. But if it's right, then why doesn't it accomplish the righteousness of God? Well, the problem with human anger is that our justice meter is skewed and faulty. I mean, just think about the things that cause you to begin to feel like anger is rising up in you. You you know, when I feel anger on a daily basis, when I'm sitting at a red light and the light turns green and the car in front of me does not move (laughs) because they're on the phone, right? And I'm angry. That person should be condemned. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I mean, yeah, they, they they should move. But is it really worthy of my judgment? No, our, our, our justice meter is off. It's way too sensitive about some things. And it's not sensitive at all about other things that it, sh- that it should be sensitive about. Our, our, our justice meter is, is biased. I was at this basketball game last night for my kids' school. And at one point, I found myself getting angry at the ref. You guys have all been there. You've been angry at the ref. I was only angry at the ref when he made a bad call against my team. I never felt anger when he made a bad call against the other team. Hmm. Maybe my justice meter is a little biased. And of course, here's the thing. We we never have perfect understanding of a situation. We, we think we see what's going on, and so we're able to evaluate and declare judgment, but no. We never really know everything that went into that situation. But here's the thing. When we get angry at something or someone, we are declaring in righteous indignation that's wrong, that deserves to be condemned. And yeah, sometimes we're right but often we're not. 
And even when we're right, we aren't accomplishing God's righteousness, his judgment, because his judgment will always be perfect. He has perfect knowledge of every situation. I mean, I'm angry at the person who's on their phone in front of me and not going when the light turns green. But I don't know what's on the phone. I mean, maybe they're watching a TikTok video. But maybe they just got a distressing text from their kid at school. And, and they're needing to read it because they're going to have to change their plans and maybe go pick up their child. I don't know. But God does. God's judgment will be perfect because he will know and weigh all the factors of every situation that has ever occurred. He'll know the mitigating factors. He'll know the aggravating factors. And his judgment will be perfectly measured. I mean, I want to take the driver's license away from the guy who's in front of me not going at the green light. That would be unmeasured, a little extreme. God's judgment will never go beyond what the crime demands. When we unleash our anger on others, we're bringing down judgment on them. But friends, it is our judgment, not God's judgment. When we speak and act and think in anger like this, we are playing God. We are usurping his authority, at least in our own hearts. Now, if you claim to be a Christian, James is saying to you, Christian, stop playing God. It's not that you never get angry. He says here, be slow to anger. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, 26, be angry and do not sin. I think they're both getting at the same thing here. Genuine faith leaves room for God's wrath. That's what Paul says in Romans 12, 19. We, we leave room for God's wrath. We understand that we are not the judge and the jury. Instead, James tells us to be quick to listen. So slow down. I mean, especially probably at home, at work, your, your spouse does something or your coworker does something or your sibling does something and the anger is rising in you. And James says, whoa, 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 slow down. Listen. Ask a few questions before you deliver your judgment on their character, on their actions. Humility remembers that we lack insight. We lack perspective. I don't know what somebody's motives are unless they tell me. We are not authorized to be judge and jury. I mean, I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he says in Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. He's not saying you can never evaluate something. He's not saying you can never decide, is this right or wrong? He's saying you're not the judge. You're not the jury. 
genuine faith trusts that when it's time to judge, when it's time to bring down that final condemnation, God will do it. And he will do it perfectly. Now, why is faith so confident of that? Well, it's because God has already demonstrated his commitment to the perfect judgment of all sin and all wickedness and all rebellion at the cross. I, I, think, I think as Christians, we often, we often think of the cross as the proof of God's love. And make no mistake, it, it is. But it is only because first, it is the proof of his justice and the display of his wrath. On the cross, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, took on our sin and our wickedness. It wasn't his, it was ours, but it was reckoned to him, imputed to him, the the rebellion of his people, the, the, the wickedness of his people was counted as if it was really his. And there on the cross, God poured out his wrath his judicial wrath, his full condemnation on sin. He he didn't give Jesus a pass. He he wasn't like corrupt governments who, you know, if you're related to the right people, the, the, the judge goes easy on you. No, no, there's no nepotism here with God. No, his full wrath was poured out on his son. Jesus suffered our penalty. He endured our punishment. He died the death that sinners deserve. And the good news is that for all who put their faith in him, that death was for you. That death becomes your death your punishment paid in in full. No judgment remains. And then his resurrection secures your resurrection, fully reconciled to God. His righteousness reckoned to you, imputed to you. This marvelous trade that happens on the cross for all who put their faith in in Jesus, so that judgment day for the Christian holds no fear because it already came and it was fully satisfied. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what we want you to understand about Christianity. This this is what we're calling you to, to, to put your faith in Jesus, that he died your death so that you could have his life. We'd love to talk to you more about this. I'll be standing down front for a little bit afterwards. Talk to me. Talk to the the person that invited you. But but one way or another, don't, don't walk away misunderstanding the good news of Christianity. The, the good news is that God is angry at your sin. And he poured that anger out on his son so that he could pour out his love on you. Christian, the cross does more than just 
assure you that that you have nothing to fear on judgment day. The cross guarantees that there will be a final judgment. There will be a judgment day. If God didn't spare his own son, he certainly is not going to spare the impenitent wicked, those who continue to persist in rejecting God and going their own way. No, on the last day, because there was a cross, we know that on the last day, every wrong committed against you, every sin committed against you, every injustice that you have experienced will be judged. It will be found to have already been judged at the cross or it will be judged in the perpetrator. And Christian, that sets you free. That sets you free in this life. You don't have to be judge and jury. You don't have to make sure the judgment day comes right now because you know it is coming. It sets you free from your anger. And you think, well, well, then what am I supposed to do? What, like bad stuff continues to happen to me. Unjust stuff continues to happen to me. How am I supposed to emotionally respond? If, if, if I don't have to be angry anymore at everything bad that happens to me and to every person who does some wrong to me, how, how, how am I supposed to feel? L- let me suggest to you that there's another emotion that actually only lives over on that side of the ledger, the side of the ledger where, where injustice lives. And it's the emotion that the the older theologians called pity. Pity is not condescending or condescension. No, pity is the emotion that attaches to the action of mercy and forgiveness. Because we know there's a judgment day coming, I can respond to the person who sins against me today with pity. And I can forgive the person who sins against me. I can show mercy. Mercy and pity are the the action, is the action and the emotion that's kind of opened up to us because of the cross and because the cross guarantees a judgment day. So Christian, is there someone in your life today who deserves anger but could receive your pity and your mercy today instead? What would it mean to go to that person and offer them what they have no right to demand. Christian, the only way you'll get there is if you are deeply and firmly rooted in the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ that sets you free from the prison of your anger and allows you to move towards others with mercy. Genuine faith is slow to speak and slow to anger. It doesn't play God usurping his authority. Instead, second, genuine mature faith 
obeys God. Let's pick it up in verse 21, 21. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. All right, rather than use our words in judgment against others, James says that we should rid ourselves of all the immorality and evil that characterizes this world. So instead of being focused on what they did wrong, I'm looking at myself. I want to rid myself of of the evil and wickedness that's in me. And instead, he says, receive the implanted word, which is able to save us. Now, in in, in verse verse 21, James is actually using language that that should be familiar to many of you who are familiar with the the New Testament. This is the same language that Paul uses in Colossians chapter 3. Where, where Paul tells us to put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language, since we have put off the old man and put on the new man. This, this implanted word that, that James is talking about is, is the gospel. I've just explained, it's, it's, it's the new covenant that, that Jeremiah said God would write on our hearts in Jeremiah chapter 31. And so what James is basically telling us is, look, our response to sin and evil is based on God's word in us. Not our words towards it, but God's word to us in the gospel, a word that, that's actually been implanted in us. It's like a, now an, an, like, an, like an inborn trait because of our rebirth in the gospel. We have a a new nature, new new inborn tendencies. James calls us to receive this word. He's not talking about conversion here. He's talking about an ongoing acceptance of this word that transforms us. We're going to get a picture of this in baptism at the end of our service, because we understand that in baptism, we are symbolically going down into the grave with Jesus and being brought up into newness of life. This is what James is describing here. We have a new word that is implanted in us in this new life, and it has new tendencies. Christian, this is how we put sin to death. This is how we get rid of evil and moral filth that's so prevalent out there and is too much in us. It's a a continual receiving of the gospel. As the the gospel, this implanted word, becomes sweeter and sweeter to us, it expels lesser loves. Right? I mean, mean, think about it. Like those of you that have a sweet tooth, right? Like you could have, well, I'm going to use my favorite dessert, which is creme brulee. So... I could have creme brulee or I could have a, like a Snickers bar. Well, if, if the only thing that's being offered is the Snickers bar, okay, I mean, I'll take that. But man, you put a creme brulee right next to it, it's like, ah, no, no, get that candy bar away from me. I want the creme brulee. 
And this is the gospel, right? As we receive the good news of the gospel more and more, this, this love becomes greater than all those lesser loves and begins to push them out. Sin is a, a bit like my, my new puppy, Hector. He would take offense. I'm sure that I'm comparing him to sin. But here's the thing. Um, <laughs> I love him. But, 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 but sin is like my puppy because my puppy constantly wants my attention. Oh, he wants me thinking about him. He wants me right next to him. He wants me giving him treats. He just wants all of me. And therefore, part of training our new puppy sometimes is turning our back on him. Literally ignoring him. When he's doing something that he ought not be doing, one of the most effective things that we can do is put him on the other side of the gate and turn our back to him. Starved of the affection that he wants, he behaves. He's like, okay, that wouldn't get me what I wanted, right? Now, I'm not suggesting, I'm not using that as an illustration of how we tame and train our sin. I'm actually using it as an illustration of how we suffocate our sin. Sin wants us to be thinking about it. Sin wants us to be daydreaming about it. Sin wants our attention. But as we turn our minds away from sin and increasingly set our minds on the gospel, sin begins to just be suffocated in our lives. It's the gospel, not law, that kills sin. To to change illustrations, the gospel is like the, the turf builder that I put on my lawn in the spring and in the fall. It's poisonous to weeds, but it's really good food for my grass. And this is the gospel, poisonous to sin, but really good food for your spiritual life. God's word to you, Christian, not guilty. That word is the word that brings life to your soul and death to your sin. Receive that word. Meditate on that word. Dwell on that word. And do that word. How do we receive this implanted word of the gospel, James immediately, having called us to receive it, warns us. He says, ah, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because if we're only hearing the word of the gospel, but not acting on the gospel, James says, we're deceiving ourselves. James compares the person who who only hears the word but doesn't obey it to the person who who looks at himself in the mirror, maybe sees some spinach caught between his teeth and then immediately walks away and forgets and the spinach is still there. He is deceived about his appearance. In the same way, James says, the person who hears and only hears, but doesn't act on what he's heard and and walks away and thinks, oh, I'm, I'm good with God. And that person is deceived about the relationship with God. In fact, as I suggested in the devotional I sent out to the church this week, I think they're doubly deceived. 
On the one hand, they're deceived about God's approval, the, 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 the blessing that God gives us, and they're deceived about their own love for God. I mean, so start with God's approval. God doesn't speak to us just to hear himself talk. No, God speaks to us for our transformation. So to hear what he has to say to us, but, but then to only hear it, but not also obey what he has to say to us, that's actually worse. That's actually worse than never hearing and carrying on in disobedience. To have, to have never heard and to disobey God, that, that's, that's ignorance. It's still disobedience. Ignorance is no excuse, as, I was, as my dad taught me when it comes to the law, right? Ignorance of the law is not a defense. But far worse is knowing what God says and still not obeying it. That's not ignorance. That's carelessness. That's indifference. It might be out-and-out rebellion. I mean, is there a parent out there who's pleased at being ignored? No. Is, is there a parent out there who's, who's pleased when, when their child hears what they have to say, but then is just sort of careless about it and pays it no mind? No. Neither is God. So it's not only that we're deceived about God's attitude towards us if we are hearers only and not obeyers. We're also deceived about ourselves. We, we, we hear the word and we say, oh, I love God. I love hearing his word. But here's the thing. Love always wants to please the beloved. It's the very nature of love to want to please the beloved. So how do you please someone who is in authority over you. Well, at the very least, you do what they say. One of, one of my favorite children's books that I read to my kids uh, as they were growing up was a, a Richard Scarry book that was all about pig will and pig won't. Uh, two little piglets growing up in piggy home. And um, pig will, whenever he was asked to do something by his parents, cheerfully went and did it. And... Pig won't, when he, whenever he was asked to do something by his parents, lived up to his name and wouldn't go do it. And the point of the book, of course, is that in disobeying and always saying, no, he like missed out on stuff and he got into like things didn't go well. Um, there was a very kind of moralistic lesson. But, but I want to suggest that the pig won't is deceiving himself about his love towards his piggy mom and dad. Now, I don't know about pig will, right? Obedience can be given without love. Obedience can be given grudgingly, resentfully. But love towards someone in authority can never be given without obedience. This is what James says, the person who has God's approval, God's blessing does, she obeys. She, she looks intently into the mirror of God's word and his promises in the gospel, what James calls here the perfect law of freedom, and she perseveres in it, verse 25. 
The, the gospel, you see, not only forgives us of our sin, as we've already talked about with anger, it, it sets us free. It sets us free to obey God. Not, not to earn his love, but to show our love to him. I mean, again, just drawing on the, the parent-child relationship, isn't that what parents want from their own children? An obedience that flows from love. I've said before, boy, if one of my kids came to me and said, Dad, I know I'm really hard to love, so in order to get you to love me, I'm going to work really hard at obeying today. Yeah, that would break my heart. No, I, I, I want my children's obedience not, not to be a, a desperate effort to get me to love them, but, but the, the joyful, free acts of those who are confident of my love for them. When you look at your own life, do you see pig will or pig won't? Do you see evidence of your love for God in your joyful and glad obedience? Or do you see instead evidence of your love for yourself? As you pick and choose what part of God's word you're going to obey, depending on how it strikes you. What does doing the word look like? Well, it looks, third, like imitating God. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James wants us to know here, finally, what it means to be genuinely religious. Now, religious, religion, that, that's a word that has a lot of bad connotations for us. We don't want to be religious. We don't want to be merely religious. We don't want to be religious people. It's, it smacks of formality and, and hypocrisy, maybe just outward ritual. But that's not actually what James is talking about. This is a word that actually doesn't show up very often uh, in New Testament literature when it does and when it showed up in, in his own like larger Jewish background, what, what, what he's talking about is worship. What does it mean to be a true worshiper of God? Well, as we've already seen, it means not playing God. So we, as he puts it there in verse uh, 26, we literally keep a rein on our tongues like a horse. We put a bit in our mouth and, and we, we never let go of the reins. Now he's going to expand on that a lot when we get to chapter three. So I'm, I'm not going to go further there, but that's part of it. Negatively, we keep a rein on our mouths. We talked about that in verse 19 and 20. He's going to talk about it more, but, but then he moves and he gives us a positive vision. Positively, it means imitating God not in his authority, but in his character. James says it means, and he lists two things here, looking after orphans and widows, and it means keeping oneself unstained from the world. Now, the command to look after orphans and widows is all through the Old Testament. Uh, you, you, you just see it everywhere. The, the Old Testament people of God were continually encouraged to take care of orphans and widows. They were condemned when they didn't. And the reason for this is because this is one of the main ways God describes himself. 
Who, who is God? Well, Psalm 68, 5, God is a father of the fatherless and a champion of widows. Psalm 146, 9, the Lord protects resident aliens and helps the fatherless and the widow. Why is God particularly known as the one who looks after orphans and widows? Well, it goes back to where we started because God is righteous. In the ancient Near East, orphans and widows were the ones who were most likely to be denied justice. Because they didn't have a, a father or a husband to stand in the public square in the court and plead their defense. They were helpless and so often abused and taken advantage of, denied justice. And God again and again declares himself, I'm the one who sees the orphan and the widow. And I am the one who at the end will make sure they get the justice they deserve. At, at the same time, God is repeatedly described as holy. I mean, I can't give you all the verses because we'd have to be here for several more hours. But let me just point you to Isaiah 6, verse 3, where Isaiah has this vision of God on the throne and the angels around him. And they're declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Not once holy, not twice holy, three times holy in a, in a culture in which there was no such thing as bold face or italics or underlining. You, you emphasize something by repeating it. God is holy. And, and as a result, the sacrifices that were offered to him were to be holy. Literally, they were to be spotless, without blemish. That's the way they're described in Leviticus chapter 3. And that's the word James uses here at the end of our verse 27, for unstained, unblemished, spotless. It, it describes a gem without any flaw in it, a sacrificial animal without any defect. God is holy, and so we are called to imitate him in his holiness. God is concerned for justice, and so we should imitate him in that same concern. And in neither case... Is this passive? Do, do you see how, how, how active the verbs are throughout this whole section? We keep ourselves unstained. We, we rid ourselves of moral filth and evil. Back there in verse 21, we control our tongues. Gen genuine faith is active and it is concerned with an inward character that, that actively looks to flee evil that actively seeks to put sin to death, that says no to sin. But we also look after orphans and widows in their distress. That, that verb, look after, it's such an interesting verb. It means to go out and visit and inspect a situation in order to take care of it, to, to do something about it. The, the verb is actually related to a noun that a lot of people in this room will be familiar with, and it's the noun overseer or bishop. In the medieval church, faithful bishops, episcopoi, would go on visitation. They would episketomai. The episcopoi would go episcopoing. The, the overseer would go and oversee. The, the, the one who is looking after something would go and look after it. So the, these bishops would go to these parishes and they would bishop there. And what that meant is they would, they would poke around. They would look at the parish. They would see what's going on. And they weren't there to condemn. It's because they knew that these parish priests, they needed help. 
They were there to give help, the faithful ones anyway, to, to, to take care of the situation. This is what James says we should be doing toward those in distress, those particularly who are likely to be denied justice, those particularly who are likely to be abused or taken advantage of in our context. First in our church, but of course in our community as well. So there's not only in in true religion, true worship of God, an inward concern for our character, there is an outward concern. An outward worship. We aren't authorized to judge, but we're deeply concerned if we're genuine Christians to see justice for those to whom it's denied. And yeah, that's, that still starts with widows and orphans. I mean, one of the reasons that we have a deacon for the, for the care of women in our church is we have a lot of widows in our church. And a lot of those widows can't even gather with us anymore. And so we want to be proactive and going and seeing how they're doing and how can we help. Honestly, we need the same deacon for men in our church, older men. That strikes you as something that sounds interesting. Please come talk to me. It, it, it's why I think so many Christians, both in our church and in other churches, are deeply concerned to be part of the foster care system, who, who, who would like to be able to adopt, to, to, to take care of children who have been abandoned and left alone, and so are particularly vulnerable to abuse. It, it, it's why Christians have always moved into schools, into hospitals. To, to take care of those who are in distress. And it's why Christians today should be particularly concerned about issues of ethnic justice. Because our nation in particular has been characterized in the past by ethnic partiality, ethnic injustice. And Christians should be particularly concerned, not to just passively be concerned about it, but to be actively engaged in seeking justice, righteousness for those in our culture who are or who have been historically denied that justice and who so often today still are. And oftentimes, Christian, we need to understand that that denial of justice often doesn't come under color of law. It comes personally. I I have black and brown friends who've moved to Portland only to discover that progressives love the idea of black and brown people, but not the black or brown person standing right in front of them. That person they're not at all sure they want to trust. They're not at all sure they want to let into their club or rent their apartment to. This is happening today, people. And if you don't know about it, I suggest it's just because you don't know any black or brown people or you haven't asked them because they have the stories to tell. Christians, we need to be concerned 
about justice. Because God is concerned about justice. And it, it's what it means to worship him. Now, passively, but actively going out and looking after those who are in distress. If neither are passive, this pursuit of holiness or this pursuit of justice, I do want to be clear that neither of those actions are efforts at self-justification either. James is saying this is what worship looks like. And we've already seen that worship begins not with us, but with God. God who gave us birth through his word in verse 18, who, who's implanted his word in us, verse 21. God who has justified us through Jesus Christ. Worship in these very practical ways that I've been talking about. Worship is our response, not our effort. Worship is living out what God has already made us out to be. Worship is giving God what he's due. And what he is due is our love displayed in an obedience that imitates his character and submits, obeys his authority. Christian, God has given himself to you through Jesus Christ. He's given himself to you through Christ in order to make you like himself. So we don't need to play at being God because God has given us something so much better. He's called us to be like him in a holiness. He's called us to be like him in seeking justice. He's called us to be obedient children who love to show the world what their father is like. You understand that the book of James is calling us to be gospel reflections. Mirrors that reflect to the world the gospel and the greatness and goodness and glory of our God. So as you look in the mirror this morning, what sort of child do you see? Let's pray. Lord God, all of us in our sin and rebellion want, want to play at being you. We want to be God in our rebellion. And we fail so badly at it. And we, we deserve your wrath for even trying. Lord God, we thank you for the gospel. We, we thank you for the good news that, that you justify us, that, that you reconcile us to yourself. We, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that, that you not only forgive us, but that you're changing us. Well, we pray that, that you would help us today and every day this week receive your word, receive the gospel, and so be transformed by it into children who increasingly resemble our Father so that the world might see in us just how good and merciful and holy and just that you are.
And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.